Hello everyone and welcome to the Lisa Burke Show where today my guest is David Harley who worked for the European Parliament for over 30 years, that's three decades, serving roles from Director of Press and Media, Spokesman of the President Pat Cox 2002-2004, Secretary General of the Socialist Group 2004-2007 with a particular responsibility for external relations and Deputy Secretary General of the European Parliament, where he was responsible for overseeing the final adoption of EU legislation. David holds a degree in modern languages from the University of Cambridge and a diploma in creative writing from the University of East Anglia and is a practitioner fellow at Aston University. And in the Queen's Birthday Honours in 2011, he was awarded a CMG for services to international diplomacy. David, it's wonderful to have you in the studio here in Kirchberg. Great to be here with you, Lisa. An old home for you, in fact, because when did you first come to Luxembourg? On April Fool's Day, 1975. Nothing foolish about that at all. It yeah. was a very, very different place in 1975. Absolutely. It's quite amazing the, the way that Kirchberg has, has developed. Very impressive, but it's almost like another planet. Now. And you came here first as a translator with That's your correct. fabulous yeah. degree in modern languages. So which languages do you speak? Well, mainly the Latin languages, French, Italian, Spanish, a little bit of German, uh, and I can read the Scandinavian and translate the Scandinavian languages. I never got into Luxembourgish, I'm ashamed to say. Well, your life was very busy. I have no doubt it was very busy. And we have an opportunity now to reflect on your 62 little red notebooks. (laughs) And I, I want to start with this, first of all, the art of keeping a diary. It was obviously something that you did from the beginning. And now these 62 little red notebooks are housed in the European University Institute in Florence. Um, tell us about why it was important for you to note daily what you observed. Well, in many of the meetings that I attended, uh, where I was accompanying people who were infinitely more important than myself, it was necessary to have a, a record, a written record of, of what was discussed and where, wherever appropriate what was decided. And so the keeping a notebook started off as a sort of precautionary measure and an insurance policy. And particularly when I had the two jobs working with the press, it was very important to be able, you would know this, to, to give sort of direct quotes of what people, people were saying and lend credibility to any report that you uh, put out afterwards. Um, and it was only at a later stage, I think, that I realised that well, perhaps there was some value in these notebooks in addition to the sort of technical bit of being able to to correct the record. Your latest yeah. book is called Matters of Record Inside right. European Politics. Yeah. I think it's fairly unique, though I say this myself, um, to have a, a written record of all these meetings inside the institutions of the European Union and with the leading political figures over 20, 20 or 30 years, an insider's view which I always try to make now that I've transcribed the diaries, uh, to, to make them humorous and quirky as far as possible, but with an underlying seriousness. And they come across as that. From the amount that I've been able to read of the book, it really has a lovely joy to it, as well as the serious part. Now, obviously, diaries are written in the moment without the reflective lens. And as Kierkegaard said, and I know actually (laughs) it was twice yesterday I heard this quote (laughs) from you and from another person. Yes, it was bizarre, actually, that that Kierkegaard quote, life must be lived forwards, but it can only be understood backwards. And I wondered, when you were editing your records and rereading these notebooks, could you have predicted any of the situations that we currently face today in Europe? That's that's an interesting question. 
Well, we know that Europe uh, sort of staggers from one crisis to another. There was a sort of golden period in the 1990s with the, the introduction of the single market and then the introduction of the euro at the beginning of the, of the 2000s, enlargement in 2004. And I was very fortunate to be around during that time when these very positive developments took place. But it's never been an easy ride for the, for the European Union and enlarging to briefly 28 and today 27 uh, member states uh, obviously creates practical difficulties to get everybody, 27 people around the table to agree on lots of very co complex issues. What I didn't predict, naturally enough, was um, the war in Ukraine and the need for the European Union to kind of reset its priorities to some extent uh, as a result of, of this uh, tragic conflict on, on the continent of Europe. That was really the last thing that was in anybody's mind during most, most of my time. But I, I would maintain that the European Union has done a remarkable job over the last couple of years on Ukraine and also on climate change and on the European recovery plan. So the European Union has always uh, been characterized by resilience. There's often sort of one step forward and two steps back, but we get there in the end. And then again, reflecting on these anecdotes that you've built up over an amazing mm. career, you have many in your book. I mean, obviously, the one that I think makes everybody smile is the gin and tonic you made for the Queen and put it in the royal toilet, <laughs> so to speak. Right. Tell our listeners about that. Well, yeah, it was a bit of a, a surprise. I mean, I'd been asked by the Secretary General of Parliament to liaise with the palace for the, for the Queen's visit um, in May 1992. And I think it was the, the day before she was due to come. I, I was told by a, a sort of courtier um, that the Queen liked to have a, a glass of something before she she delivered her speech. And would I be able to to mix this uh, little cocktail of so two thirds du bonnet and one third gin? And uh, how could I refuse the instructions from the palace? And, uh, <laughs> and I, you tasted it yourself, I believe. I tasted not, myself not that one, but in a different glass, and I found it, you know, pretty strong stuff, but um, a little bit sweet for my taste. And then when the Queen delivered a remarkable speech, which went down very well, so the the medicine seemed to have worked, and I went back into the bathroom where I'd left her glass, and the glass was empty. And you mentioned in your book and notes that uh, her French was very good. Absolutely, yeah. And we'll see that again when King Charles goes to Paris next week. He also speaks good French and indeed pretty good German, because of course his father had German as his mother tongue, but that was not, not always advertised. Absolutely. An incredible history yeah. to his father's life as well. Thinking about many of the people that you've met, and you have met so many political figures, I almost said the word heroes, they're heroes to some, not to others. Yeah. Who do you hold in highest regard? Many people ask me that question, and I always find it very, very difficult. I don't really kind of look at these personalities to, to work out a ranking order. Uh, it's more I'm interested in, the, uh, in their character and sometimes the, the contradictory nature of their, of their personality. Um, and I take Gerhard Schroeder as an example, the former Chancellor of Germany, who is extremely unpopular at the moment because of his disgraceful stance on... Uh, Putin's Russia and his association with, with Gazprom. But I found out early on that uh, even though he could be incredibly rude and difficult uh, when you met him, 
his childhood was very interesting. That his father died at the end of the war uh, when he was only a few months old, and his mother worked as a farm laborer to support her two sons. He left school early, worked on a building site uh, to earn money to then go to university. So he really had a very interesting background, which possibly explained to some extent. The, the contradictions later on. But, the but most he must also be, sorry to interrupt yeah, you, incredibly yeah. intelligent because the universities he attended, yeah. what he studied, yes. to get there from that background was exceptional. Yes. I don't know, it's perhaps a little bit simplistic to say, but I think that he was also in his later life and still today quite motivated by money. Uh, and was possibly not having had any money in his early life and having you know suffered quite a lot of hardship. Uh, that he was attracted by these uh, directorships and said it were rather disreputable companies. I'm sure that must play a factor in his psyche, as you mentioned, because he knows what it's like to have Mm. nothing and that would have been a driving force in Mm. his whole being for his whole life. Tony Blair... You worked uh, closely with him, of course. It was the, mm. the prosperous period, as you mentioned, of European relations with Britain. Sure. Now, Tony Blair is a particularly, has a particularly fascinating personality. And I was at this um, talk in London a, a few weeks ago with Michael Billington, who's a theatre critic, very reputed theatre critic in, in the UK. Uh, and he described... Tony Blair as a classic Shakespearean character uh, with many outstanding qualities, but a fatal flaw of misplaced self-belief and naivety. And, and I think that describes him quite well. And he was the most brilliant orator and, and communicator. But I remember one of the meetings I attended in, in Downing Street towards the end of his tenure, and he suddenly started talking about the Middle East and he was using language that I'd heard before from the sort of right wing uh, in Israel. And suddenly the sort of the scales fell from my eyes and I thought, he hasn't really worked this out himself. And so despite the, the facade and the exterior brilliance, there were some weaknesses of character and, and even intellectual analysis that he himself would never admit to. Well, I suppose nobody, no politician can be intellectually on top of everything. But given that we're talking about Tony Blair and it is the 20-year anniversary of the Iraq war, I suppose we must talk about this as well. It's in so much news across Britain in particular. Many, many documentaries, podcasts about it as well. And of course, his name comes up with this all of the time Mm -hmm. and everything around that circus. But the stance in Europe was quite different and you would have lived perhaps a different experience to that of our British listeners. The stance in many countries in Europe was different. Um, If Tony Blair was sitting in this seat, he would disagree with you to some extent because um, he had support from Italy, Spain, Portugal, one or two other countries, but smaller countries. But the big difference was between the UK on the one hand and France and Germany on the other. Uh, and relations really took a dive there um, between the UK and two countries that are often the most important partners for the for the UK in in Europe. And it was all based on this absurd um, refusal to accept the reality of the information about weapons of mass destruction. Uh, and it was a 
an intelligence failure, a failure by the British intelligence services on a monumental scale. And the great question is, the Americans, were they also guilty of intelligence failure? Or, and this is probably what I would think, did they know all the time and they were stringing Britain along? And it ended in tragedy, as we know. Well, there's so much to be said about that, and there are greater experts out there than myself to, right. to dive into That's that. Greater than mine too, yeah. But in your role as Director of Press and Media and Spokesman and the various yeah. roles that you've held over the years, do you feel, when you hear these conversations going on, a bystander or even a mediator at times, what would your function be in the room at the time? Well, it would depend on what particular job I had at the time and, and the subject under discussion. If I was accompanying, say, Pat Cox when he was president of the parliament, then I would always have half an eye on the press release or whatever we'd say to the journalists when we came out of the room. So I'd be looking for a, a good phrase that would sum up uh, the, the key points that had been raised at the meeting. Uh, in, in other cases, I would sort of note it down for further reflection if there was some sort of new development. Um, and then I would go back and, and brief my colleagues in whatever service I, I was working in at the time. But I was a sort of shadow, shadowy background figure. I was not playing a leading role. I was a bag carrier and a note taker, and that's all there was to it. But it's the shadowy <laughs> characters that can perhaps listen the yeah. best. Yeah, and I think the diary is a great genre, a great form, because you can, first of all, for the reader, you don't have to read the whole thing. You can sort of dip in and out. And I could see it the other day when I was trying to sell the book. People have this instinct to look at the index to see, well, if they were a political figure, they want to see if they're in it themselves. Otherwise, you know, if there are names that, that they recognize. But as, as you go through it, because it, in my diaries, there's a lot about Brussels and the European Parliament and sort of internal stuff. But also, there, I made lots of trips to the United States, to the Middle East, to, to China. And some people might not be interested or so much interested in that. And so they can move on to... Uh, to another uh, part, part of the book. But uh, the great thing about the diary is, is, is also that it, um, it provides us a kind of continuum, uh, which you don't always realise when you live it in real time. Um, for example, to go back to Tony Blair for a second, in rereading my diaries, I, I could see it was completely clear that his main objective in the last years of his premiership was to become president of the European Council. Uh, and I could see the notes I'd taken every time a minister came to Brussels, they would sort of make a little pitch for Tony Blair in a rather roundabout way. And I, I didn't pick it up at the time. I could see afterwards that this was Tony Blair's game plan, which was also scuppered by his position on Iraq in particular. Well, it's very interesting, the, the political pawn moves there, then the slight drip feed of information that's coming your way. Yeah. But the other part of uh, a political life, which you have played in the wings, as you say, <laughs> is that your longevity supersedes any of those leaders. And so you have a continuance mm -hmm. of diaries and of life there. And, yeah. and that history that you have lived there, that they have not lived there. And that gives you a different reflection on it as well. I suppose that's true. Yeah. And um, I like, for example, with the, in terms of uh, visiting the Elysee Palace in Paris, I think I, I went to the Elysee under the presidencies of François Mitterrand, Jacques Chirac, Nicolas Sarkozy, and, and I also met François Hollande. 
So I, I can sort of draw a comparison between these various figures. Obviously, Macron, uh, he, he arrived after I had, I had left the scene. And Chirac, whose political views I often disagreed with, I found by a long way the most sympathetic sort of human being. And he was a great character. He was sort of intrinsically naughty and mischievous and, and could have a terrible temper. And then another sort of quirky anecdotal point is that Chirac, because I had, I had a lunch sitting next to Chirac, and I was greatly honoured in the Elysee at one time, and um, he never drank wine. He always had a bottle of Corona uh, on the table. And, and Chirac was uh, elected president of France twice, first for seven years, then they changed the system for five years. So during the 12 years, the Elysee Palace, which has possibly the best wine cellar in the world, uh, was never able to provide wine for its president. And then he was succeeded by Sarkozy, who was also a complete teetotaler. Uh, and so there was a lot of un, undrunk wine, at least by the presidents, over, over those 20-odd odd years. Well, that's a fascinating yeah. reflection there. I love also the name of Jacques Chirac's dog. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a small dog, I believe, but called Sumo. <laughs> yeah, because Jacques Chirac... Because he sort of comes across his images as a sort of man of the people and sort of comes from the country, always used to make a big show when he went to the annual agricultural fair in, in Paris. But he was also very knowledgeable about the cultures of the Far East. And Sumo, as I'm sure you've gathered, uh, was the name of the dog because of his interest in sumo wrestling and Jap Japanese art and Chinese ceramics and all that sort of stuff. So there are many different sides to, to Jacques Chirac, as there are to almost every human being. Oh, absolutely. I think we see that more and more. And as you said right at the start, when I asked you about how to, not to rate them, but who did you admire? Mm. Everybody is multifaceted and everybody mm. has many sides, good and bad. But you also spent time with a very important person politically, uh, made huge changes to Ireland, John Hume. Yes. I was very, very honoured that John spent this period, a couple of years, 18 months, two years, 19, in 1993, 1994, when he would come to my office in Strasbourg every Monday afternoon of, of the Strasbourg week at four o'clock. It was nearly always at the same time. And he'd always look sort of tired and crumpled. And he'd sit down and just fire off his frustrations uh, at the lack of support that he was getting almost by everybody he knew. I mean, he was even at times attacked by his own party, the SDLP. Obviously, I mean, what he was trying to do at the time was, was to build a bridge with, um, with Sinn Féin, IRA, with Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness. And they were so slow in sort of coming to the table. But uh, the main target of his uh, frustration was the British government and, and John Major. I never knew exactly why he chose me to vent his unhappiness on, on these issues. But I think he, he assumed that I would sort of pass it upstairs, either to the authorities in the European Parliament, probably more to the point to the British permanent representation and the Foreign Office, which indeed I, I, I did. Uh, and so that was a, a great honour for me to be taken into his confidence. And also, during that same period, um, I was made aware of his extraordinary access to politicians in the United States. I went on a brief visit uh, to Washington and John gave me a list of half a dozen people 
mainly uh, Irish Americans that he wanted me to see. And one was Bill Clinton's national security advisor. And I, I was taken straight in there. To, I, I had access to the highest levels of the White House and the Congress, uh, thanks to, to John's recommendation. What are the conversations like in the US politically compared to those in Europe? Do they take a different bend? Do they take a different speed? Yeah, they're like um, most conversations with, with Americans. They, you know, they have a different language. They have a different way of looking at, at politics. But the ignorance at high levels of the American administration of the European Union was at first uh, surprising. I remember one meeting I went to, I think it was the deputy Secretary of State said that nobody in Washington understands the European Union, not even the State Department. Uh, and, and that was clearly true. And I felt that a lot of European politicians have fell into the trap. And they, almost all European politicians love to go to Washington and they're fated and wined and dined and taken to Congress. And they think that they're in the, the, the center of power. But actually, the United States will always defend the interests of the United States before anything else, irrespective, in fact, of who is is president. Though I have to say that Joe Biden at the moment has always been uh, very well disposed to, to Europe, European countries and the EU and knows the setup here and the institutional framework much better than almost any preceding American president. Well, we'll come back to, to that point, but I just want to uh, sit on John Hume for a while because yeah. one of the interesting points that I, I, I didn't realise was that he and Seamus Heaney, the poet, yeah. went to the same primary school, yeah. St. Columns and Derry. Yeah. They pumped out some great people. Yeah, sure. <laughs> no, it's a fantastic uh, achievement for, for the school. And also I wanted to sit on the point because, of course, along with Brexit, which is something we haven't yet mentioned, uh, the relations uh, between, well, across the border, let's say, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland has been a huge problem to tackle. How has the European Union dealt with this, in your view? Well, I would make the case for the European Union having been fundamentally instrumental in laying the, the ground for the Good Friday Agreement. And right from the very beginning, in other words, when Britain and Ireland joined, John Hume, before he became an MEP, he was working in the commission, in the cabinet of the Irish Commissioner, Burke, and he was already networking hard. And as soon as he became an MEP and he joined the regional committee and he got this French liberal member, Simone Martin, to do a report on financing cross-border initiatives uh, in, in Northern Ireland, and sort of one thing led to another. Jacques Delors was a great supporter. And this is a little bit controversial to say, but I don't think the British government ever realised the extent of all the work that was going on in in Brussels to help uh, promote peace and reconciliation in in Northern Ireland. And it was not a surprise that we ended up with a protocol that was actually very sympathetic to the wishes of the majority of the population in Northern Ireland even if the uh, the DUP, as we know, and uh, we'll see in the vote in the House of Commons this afternoon, um, we're not quite so happy. This is a basic point that not many people in, in Britain t- take on board, that the majority of the population in Northern Ireland voted against Brexit and are in favour of the protocol. We've mentioned Brexit there as well, yeah. and there's so much there also when you were talking about your time in the US and people right at the highest level Mm. in Washington not really understanding Mm. the EU. I'm thinking about your role as director of press and media and spokesman as well. I don't know how many people in Europe, 
<laughs> yeah. actually understand how the EU works. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. So it's it's a little bit unfair to, to say that it's only the Americans or to imply that it's only Americans that don't understand. There is a similar lack of understanding, but not, I wouldn't think, in the, the foreign ministries of most European countries, which to some extent was the point I was saying. Obviously, the... I mean, some absurd statistic about the number of um, American members of Congress who actually have passports is only about sort of twenty percent. But you know, it's a big country and lots of different interesting places to, to visit in the United States. They don't don't have to come to Europe. But certainly, I ca I cannot claim that my time as director of press working in communications on behalf of an EU institution was crowned in glory. Uh, but it's difficult to get the message out, and you have to do it. I would only say this that. Uh, the EU has to work together with the governments of the member states to get the message across. Uh, and that has never really been done. I think for many of our listeners who reside in Luxembourg, not all of our listeners yeah. do reside in Luxembourg, but many do and many will be expats. And of course, we can see all of the EU institutions and some of our listeners will be working there. Yeah. But those of us who are not, we don't feel connected. They feel like a different city, a different world. And I do think as a citizen on the lower level, I feel like all of the EU institutions are like mm. plates spinning above me and everything goes on above me, but we're not quite connected to it because there's that and then there's the country, the national ideas as well. And for your role as director for press and communication, it would be very, very hard to talk to the media to explain. I mean, the media is across all countries in many languages. That's another issue. Sure. So how did you try to get the message down to citizen level? Well, I think uh, you have to target your message to the different sectors of the society and, and the economy. I mean, I, I hear what you say just now, and I'm sure that your views are, are very representative. But if you were working in business, for example, or even even in the, in the arts, uh, if you were working in university, if you were a scientist, then I think you would have a greater idea of the value of the Euro European Union. But we didn't publicize, well, at least in the case of the UK, we didn't publicize enough all the good things that the European Union was doing, particularly in deprived areas. So we now have this so-called new conservative policy in the UK called leveling up, mainly to, to be applied to the more deprived areas in the, in the, in the northeast of England and, and the Midlands. But actually, it's the European Union has been working on levelling up. It's a principal goal of the European Union to reduce disparities in, in per capita income. I think a lot of people have seen it since Brexit. Yeah. And we do hear a lot of the scientists and business leaders talking yeah. about the problems now yeah. because yeah. of Brexit. Yeah. And so Brexit, we yeah, had sure. to mention it at some point. Is that something that you could have ever anticipated through rereading your diaries? Well, the diaries don't mention Brexit. No, but the right. idea of the friction between British ideology, perhaps, and the rest of the EU institutions. It's an enormous subject, but for most of the time covered by my diaries and most of the time when I was working for the European Parliament, it was completely unimaginable that Britain would ever leave. And it shouldn't have happened. It was a kind of, it was a, a tragic accident, I see, as, as I see it now. Now, I mean, there's a lot to be said about this subject. And the problems of Britain's relations with the continent of, of Europe go back literally a thousand years because the fact that Britain, like Ireland, is is an island, you know, is uh, means that the, there is a bit of an island mentality. So you don't have the same uh, habits and culture of cross-border cooperation that you get in Luxembourg or in, in the other border areas surrounding 
Luxembourg. Then you you can even throw into the mix of the the, the historical reasons for Britain having a particular view of Europe uh, the um, the Reformation, uh, which many people made uh, comparisons at the time. And Henry VIII was criticised even by his courtiers of breaking off relations with Rome, and this would be very bad for trade. And so it was very a very similar feeling around the the country and the establishment at the time, but. I often, in this kind of conversation, I bring out the quote by a distinguished British journalist, no longer with us, Hugo Young, who says that the the British people, uh, and in particular the Conservative Party, are still struggling uh, to reconcile the past that they cannot forget and the future that they cannot avoid. So it's a bit of a sort of split mentality. However, I mean, the main reason why Brexit happened, in, in my opinion, was that it was extraordinarily badly managed by both the main political parties in the UK, that David Cameron should never have called a referendum in the first place. He could have actually negotiated, I think, much better. There were quite a lot of sympathetic voices in, in Brussels and in the capitals of the member states uh, who would have liked to help, but he had the, the wrong attitude. He tried to sort of impose the British view. That didn't work. And then when we actually came to the referendum itself, the, the campaign on the Remain side was very badly organised and to cap it all, Labour had a Brexiteer leader of, of the party in Jeremy Corbyn. So it was a kind of perfect storm. That being said, of course, the European Union is far from perfect, um, but we never really got uh, had a serious conversation about um, the advantages and the disadvantages. And the whole point of the European Union uh, in, in a rather sort of over simple phrase, in my opinion, is in response to the question, what is the European Union for? And I would reply, it's in order to raise living standards by pooling resources. That's what the European Union is about. You mentioned that Ireland and Britain have mm. uh, island mentalities, but I feel as an Irish person in my heart uh, uh, and by birth, Ireland feels very connected to Europe. Yeah. And of course, I think Irish people know how much they have gained by belonging to Europe. They can literally see it in the roads, in the schools, in the deprived areas, in all yes, areas, in fact. Yeah. So they see it and they feel it and they know <clears> it. <throat> Whereas uh, perhaps Britain hasn't seen it everywhere. Certain places, yes, they have done. Mm. But uh, I just wanted to think about the good things that Europe does. You mentioned climate change. You mm. feel it's a leader in the world on climate change, for instance. Yes, I think so, yeah. I think they've made, they've made great strides. Um, it's going to be very difficult to get other countries on side, but I think the European Union has, to some extent, given the lead. And what about European defence policy? Well, up until now, there hasn't been one. Um, and, but we are making the first few moves, but in a very kind of modest way. It's more cooperation in defence and, and security than having an actual policy. And there's nothing in the treaty that... Uh, binds the 27 member states together about um, defence policy. But this is changing. It is one of the most remarkable changes in the in the European Commission and the EU institution generally from over the last two years. Well, I think that's where citizens who are not au fait with everything that happens within the EU European Union and the, and the Parliament as well, there's a difference between what can be voted on nationally and what can be voted on and taken on board at the umbrella level of the European Union. And that doesn't always feed down. So for our citizens and our listeners who want to learn more, at what level can the EU feed down into national level? At what level do they have authority? 
But the EU does not intend or practice sort of an imposing of views from on high. Because it's a cooperation of all of the countries yeah, together, and it, of course. You know, it's at every, every level when you're presenting or processing a, a new draft law or legislation that you consult the both sides of industry, companies, trade unions, and you consult the member states, and then it goes through the, the institutions. And so it's actually quite a democratic process. A, a lot of people are involved. Well, democratic, on that point, you need everybody's sign off for something to happen. So some people think that that level of bureaucracy where you need everybody to agree to something takes so much time things move very slowly well things do move slowly but i think it's a price we have to pay for getting the right result and keeping everybody on board so there is a big debate even now about whether we should um maintain qmv qualified majority voting or whether we can um take important foreign policy and defense decisions on the basis of, of, of a majority and probably when it's a case of peace or war you can't sort of wait for Mr. Orban in Hungary to have had his latest phone call with Mr. Putin to, to decide what he's going to say in, in the European Council. Uh, so, yes, uh, the, the European Union uh, is slow moving. I remember going to a, hosting a dinner for an American ambassador in Brussels uh, a few years ago, and he said the difference between Brussels and um, Silicon Valley was that in Silicon Valley, the guys wake up every, every morning and say, what am I going to innovate today and Brussels commission officials wake up every morning and say what am I going to regulate to today uh, that's a bit of a, the contrast between the two cultures and it's I, th I think it's true that the, the commission in particular I mean, I've got lots of friends in the commission and I respect Mrs von der Leyen enormously but I think they do get a little bit trapped in their own language and so technocracy so it's important to, to go out and, and, and meet the people and I would say throwing into the, into the mix of this conversation I think what I don't understand is why the European Union doesn't do more to alleviate poverty around around Europe because every country now is moving a little bit to the right to the far right and there are these pockets of deprivation kind of everywhere and the European Union ought to help out for the people that are most struggling uh, against the rise in the cost of living and, and other issues. Well, you've mentioned that a couple of times with the levelling mm. up. That has always been an yeah. ethos within the European Union. And of course, we've had uh, many new member states join mm. in your time as well, as some of them coming from communist regimes, sure. of course. How have you seen the European Union help them develop? Give us examples of how you've seen them rise and what could have been done better, what can still be done better. Well, I think for the economies of pretty much all these countries, uh, things have worked very well. And a country like Germany immediately saw an opportunity. And the, there are a very significant automobile car manufacturing plants in Slovakia, Slovenia, Hungary even. Uh, so economically, I think that uh, the enlargement uh, has been a success. Uh, but with the advantage of hindsight... It was a great, there was a great political push to admit these countries to the European Union in the late 1990s, early 2000s, after the fall of the wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union. But I don't think I put this in my diaries, but the former Polish foreign minister, Borislav Garamek, told me once how a key mistake was made in the enlargement process by not paying enough attention to 
civil society in, in the countries concerned. And then there was a time when I went to Romania. I attended a meeting with the Romanian justice minister. This was about a year before their extension. It was absolutely clear that they weren't ready. And then also in the same sort of path of ideas, I remember Vaclav Havel coming to the European Parliament shortly before he died, saying, be patient. This has never happened before to bring in all these former communist countries. We just don't know how people are are going to react when you change almost overnight from one totalitarian regime into a, a democracy. So I think that mistakes were possibly made at the beginning, but the basic principle of reunifying our continent was a great goal. And so we can look at the results with some concern, but also considerable satisfaction. And when we look at the situation in Ukraine right now, right on the edge, of course, of Europe, the the help from Europe has been immense. Yes. But um, what is the talk around that area? What was the talk during your tenure? Well, from an early stage, people realised that Ukraine, that it was up to the European Union to try and bring the Ukraine or Ukraine closer to Europe and not to allow it to be submerged by Russia or the Soviet Union. That was an understanding from the earliest days. And even though it's perhaps would sound a little bit inappropriate to mention it at the moment, given the sufferings of the people of Ukraine, it was a country in a, a pretty bad way in terms of corruption up until very recently. And I, I, I saw that myself on a, on, a, on a couple of occasions. And so there was a lot of work to do to try and set up the right institutions and democratic processes. It was ruled by oligarch, even and up until and including the, the first election of Zelensky. And I think he, he would admit that. But he, he has managed, in addition to fighting the war, Zelensky and his people have made important strides, I think, in reducing corruption in Ukraine. But I mean, also like so many other things in Europe, if you, if you, if you can take the long view, going back to Kierkegaard, to understand history by looking backwards, um, Ukraine has always been, to some extent, divided. And part of the, the Western part of Ukraine was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But there was tension all the way through history, really, between the East and the West. So it's not entirely new. And Putin, unfortunately, saw this as, a, as an opportunity. But he hadn't counted on the EU member states being so united. And that is a, a source of, of pride for us Europeans. But there's still a long way to go to, to defeat uh, Russia in this war. But given that history that you've explained so eloquently, and the fact that you actually know the history, which is more than many people, I would say, in fact, to that level, do you think the eastern part of Ukraine should, dare I say, belong to Russia? No, I think there cannot be any concessions here. You cannot allow one country to invade the sovereign territory of another. Unfortunately, the Western world, and in particular the United States and the United Kingdom, if you use this argument to people in the global south, they say, yeah, but what about Iraq? What about Syria? You know? And so that is another way in which the consequences of, of Iraq, of the Iraq war, have sort of permeated through to the situation in Ukraine today because there's very little support for the position of, of the Western countries in, in the international organizations, particularly in the in, 
in the United Nations, and they w- they will refer to Iraq over and over again. Uh, Iraq was not only a tragedy for the people of Iraq and caused the deaths of some three hundred thousand people, but it had this sort of domino effect in in Syria with Iran and with ISIS and terrorism. It's just a, a never-ending chapter of of errors with incalculable consequences. But in your dealings with the the American political mm. forces, how do they reflect on the Iraq war? Well, it was a strange period in the United States at the time. I think they had this uh, new law they brought in called the Patriot Act. And so for a few years, it was very difficult for any American politician to say a word against President George W. Bush or the war in Iraq. Barack Obama was one of the very few American politicians who opposed the war. Hillary Clinton, on the other hand, was in favour. And the great majority of both Democrats and Republicans were, they misjudged the situation badly, as as did Tony Blair. And it, but for the United States, in my book I mentioned a meeting with <coughs> Pat Cox and Vice President Cheney, where he made it quite clear, and this was nine months before the, the invasion, that the United States could not stand by and let a rogue state control 10% of the world's oil reserves. So that was really what it was all about for the US, I think. They said it was democracy, but it was actually oil. Getting to the oil fields, which still are not very well managed in Iraq. And uh, I don't think there's a a great source to that oil right now. Absolutely, yeah. It's incredibly sad, but it also shows that having the long view of history that we've uh, (laughs) mentioned a few times Mm. is so very important. When you think about politics, we have some people who were born in the 1990s. (laughs) We have people who have not lived through much of what you've lived through. They have not lived through the history that you're describing. How important is it to have a command of recent world history in order to be a good politician? That's another very, very interesting question. I I seem to recall that you interviewed uh, Jean-Claude Juncker not not so far ago, not so long ago. And he was a good representative of this immediate post-Second World War generation for whom building the European Union was in order to correct the tragic errors of the past that led to the Second World War and the Holocaust and all that. But that generation is slowly moving on and we have to find perhaps new messages and new motivation for the younger generation today. But I think they are very much prepared to to play their part. But that's why it's so important in the specific context of Britain's relations with the EU and for the EU generally, that we must target resources on young people, on exchanges between schools and universities, on helping to finance more uh, university research, but also the enormous amount that can be done and would be enormously appreciated by younger people in terms of the arts and culture and music. That's where the the future of the European Union lies in terms of bringing people together and not just talking about dry, technocratic, complex processes. I think that's beautifully said. And and these are conversations that pop up in the press all the time. I I listen to a lot of the the British press, of course, (laughs) and they talk about the decreasing funds towards higher education, towards the arts, towards creative studies as well. And as you say, it feeds the soul, it feeds the mind. And if the European Union can step up there, all the better. Mm. For your generation behind you, Mm. what advice have you got for them? Those following in your great footsteps. 
Well, they keep on doing what they're doing, but uh, the European Union institutions, including the institution that I worked for, the European Parliament, must be more outward-looking. I think we should be careful in managing the resources that we have in the, in the institutions. I, mean, I think we should not overdo excessive numbers to be, to be recruited. We have to be careful in managing the budget. The approach that we have to financial management should be a reflection of the, the challenges and the difficulties in the wider uh, society, rather than looking upon the EU institutions as a sort of castle on the hill, and as you more or less uh, intimated uh, a few moments ago, a sort of different planet. The European Parliament is, is not a sort of spaceship uh, traveling around in an alternative ga galaxy. It must represent the views and concerns of people in their daily lives. So there's still a little bit of, bit of work to be done on that. And then taking the, the European Parliament, the European mm. Union, uh, Commission, all, mm. all of these words that people hear, yeah. and not everybody fully understands them, of I course, must say. Yeah. How can that be reflected outwards as well? Of course, during your time, you travelled to every continent, pretty much. How can those links be fostered? You mean links with other parts of the world? Yes. Yeah. Well, I used to find as a sort of rule of thumb that the further you moved away from Brussels, the more people appreciated the European Union. Um, and I think in terms of the EU's foreign policy at the moment, things are not going so badly, but we have enormous competition in Africa, in the global south, in South America, from uh, China in particular, and to some extent for Russia. I think people underestimate the influence that Russia is beginning to increase for itself on the continent of Africa. And so the European Union must be more outward looking in that respect. More present. Of mm. course, you came here in 1975 on April <laughs> Fool's Day, as you said, as a linguist, mm. as a translator. How important has it been in your career to have mastery of various languages? Well, it's certainly been a, been a great help. I don't know if there's anything particularly interesting I can say about the importance of languages in my career, but I think I would point to... To be able to really connect culturally. Yeah, th th that is absolutely essential. It's a sort of cornerstone of the functioning of the, of the EU and the EU institutions. And it's also something where a lot of members, depending, I suppose, on what countries they come from, but taking in particular British members, the number of British MEPs who spoke foreign languages is very small. And it makes an enormous difference to be able to uh, communicate uh, in somebody else's language and to understand their cultural priorities. So la languages are a very intrinsic, integral part of the European ideal, the European project. And then finally, what can be done from the press side, from the media side, the opposite end of the line to the work that you did so beautifully for so many years? What can the press do to help shine a light on everything done by the EU? Well, I don't know if the press sees it as its mission to help the EU. Uh, question, <laughs> question politely, yeah. not always politely. Yeah. Well, as you know, we have a very strange tabloid press in the UK. And so that's um, a another problem press for, for, for another time. But I can't really answer your question without referring to social media and the polarization of people's opinions in the media generally. So the European Union has to rise to that challenge too and to try and prevent or at least minimize this sort of breakdown of opinions into opposing extremes. We have to sort of 
reoccupy the the rational center. Easier said than done, but we should not allow ourselves to be distracted or sent off course by the vitriol and the extreme language and extreme ideas propagated in social media. Something that young people are having to navigate from perhaps too young an age these days. Any final thoughts that you would like to leave our listeners before you fly away from Luxembourg once more? Well, I'd just like to say that I was quite moved uh, coming to Luxembourg yesterday. And actually speaking personally, I went yesterday afternoon to visit um, Tilla Vinci, who's the wife of the former Italian Secretary General of, of the European Parliament. And so Enrico Vinci was my sort of godfather, if you like. He helped me along the way in my career. So I tell this story in part of my book up to some extent, how I was at Enrico Vinci's family house in Sicily, overlooking the the Bay of Messina. And uh, I was reminded of how, you know, they had this conference of Messina in 1955, which is the first conference that decided on the union of European nations, which led to the creation of the European Economic Community. And Britain had refused to send a minister and sent a civil servant who reported back that this will never work. And so I felt that somehow, somehow or other going to visit Messina was a way of, and also Enrico Vinci himself had been the secretary uh, to the Italian foreign minister at the conference of Messina. So what I'm, what I'm saying in a very roundabout way is that everything is linked. And if there are bad times, you just have to dust yourself down and pick yourself up and, and keep fighting because basically the cause is worth it. What a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much, David. There'll always be a place here for you to stay in Luxembourg. I'm quite sure of that. You're always welcome back to visit everything that you have seen mm. be built and developed. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks Thank you. The Lisa Burke Show. Hello, Sasha. It's lovely to be with you here in the booth. We're doing this recording a little bit differently this week. Yes, it's like the, when we first started, isn't it? It's it's nice. It's, it's just the two of us. It's, it's really nice. In a way, more relaxed. It is, absolutely. So I had this interview with David earlier in the week, which I know you've had the chance to listen to some of it at least, and it comes out during the course of the weekend. And I know that actually your husband works within the EU institutions. Yeah, it's true. So we're quite conscious. I think you know most people living in Luxembourg are very conscious of what the EU does. But I think outside maybe of Luxembourg and people who, yes, are not connected to the EU institutions or who have children who go to the European school, you know, you're, you're kind of very aware of it, aren't you? Um, maybe you're not so aware of what David was talking about. Um, you know, these historic moments that have that have kind of punctuated the the whole existence of the EU and also its importance now. So I thought it was really interesting what he was saying about the cooperation, how they they worked together so well. And I think now that is something that's much more difficult to coordinate, isn't it? I mean, they've gone to 20, now seven countries to get all countries to to agree one policy, that seems to be the the, the biggest stumbling block for for the EU. Yeah, yeah, I was listening to that very much as well. And 
you're right, this whole history that he carries and has lived, it's an incredible history. And I'm so in awe that he kept notes. I know he needed to keep notes, but he, he kept that practice of keeping notes, 62 notebooks. It's really impressive. Amazing, isn't it? And he met everyone. I mean, he seems to have been in the, on in the, the room in the room of all these historic decisions. Mm-hmm. And so humble. He, he called himself the man in the shadows. But of course, that's an art. That's a skill because you're there, but you are really the thread between everything. And so many people came to him as he spoke about. He was like a mediator to pass on their grievances. <laughs> he spoke about John Hume coming in on Mondays at four o'clock in Strasbourg and um, just saying whatever he wanted to say to David and knowing David would pass it on in a very sympathetic way. To the right person. And mm. also, I think this this thing that, that anything that was set him was kind of in confidence. Oh, so yes. He has the diaries, but, you know, nowadays people keep diaries and, you know, if you think of sort of political diaries, they're out very quickly and, you know, many confidences betrayed. And I think this, this harks back maybe to another time where there mm. was a more... I don't know, for better, want of a better word, a sort of gentleman's agreement that yes. things were said in a room, stayed in that room. Absolutely. And of course, for much, most of his career, it would have been without social media. So the dynamic when he was director of communications uh, and he was spokesperson as well for Pat Cox, the way in which media has changed, as we know, it, it's so abrupt and social media is such a different pace of expressing things politically these days. Yes, no, it's, that's really, really interesting. And I think the other thing that's interesting is, so he was speaking as a British person and of course the fact that, you know, England and, and the, well, the UK was in the EU at the time. And of course now we're looking at it from a slightly different perspective. And of course the English press were always pretty anti-EU. So I think we grew up feeling always reading all the criticisms of the EU. So even before the Brexit vote came through, there was a lot of negative reporting. What does the EU actually do? You know, what what good does it do for us? So it was really interesting to hear his perspective on that. Yeah, and he mentioned the island mentality. But of course, I know what the EU has done for Ireland. And I can understand also, having lived in England for so long, why people think that way too. Because of course, it's the most deprived areas where the EU has helped the most, most visibly, in fact, from what I can see. But uh, that longevity and that history, I think it's so important that we learn from people like him. And of course, we mentioned the Iraq war. And in fact, you and I mentioned the Iraq war last week in our news review. I've been listening to all of the podcasts as we spoke about as well. And the BBC have a great, um, on BBC Radio 4, there's a wonderful documentary uh, that you can listen to. Great, it's great, It's really good. Really detailed Very well. insightful. And um, yeah, David did mention his own views on it. But for those reasons and when you speak to the people who were involved with it at the time, on that BBC series, in fact, I was really surprised that the people on the ground in Iraq, the scientists, or I'm not sure if they were spies, but they were looking for the weapons of mass destruction yeah. and they couldn't find any, but they were not allowed to say anything. They were absolutely sealed from saying anything. And I was wondering, why wasn't there a whistleblower at the time? 
it is extraordinary when you think about these intelligence reports, which apparently were like hearsay, weren't they? Mm. Sort of caught in the back of a taxi yeah. and fed, fed through the security agencies. And as you say, the the weapons inspectors didn't find anything. And so why did anyone believe it? It is absolutely extraordinary. And David also mentions, mm. though, the the big protests in, mm. in France and Germany that I think in, in the UK and in America, presumably, um, there we just followed. Well, there the, was a huge protest in the UK. Um, there was, yeah. yes. There was, a, there was a massive demonstration, wasn't yeah, there? Yeah. But um, I, I don't think that it was a sort of continued um, demonstration against it. Uh, or I think also because the French and the German governments were maybe a little bit more cynical about these reports. So it's, it's very interesting. Yes. And of course, that's also the time when France and Germany were working more closely together. I think what's changed in the EU a little bit now is that the, there's a big power shift, isn't there? That mm. it was always France, Germany, France, Germany. And now they don't seem to be quite in the same agreement on all policies. So I think the EU's big challenge, obviously, is to have a common policy on things. And they've done very well with Ukraine mm -hmm. of having a sort of joint forcing through joint policies, you know, only uh, the EU summit going on um, Thursday and Friday today when we're recording, they have agreed to uh, send over a million ammunition uh, rounds to, to Ukraine. So I think they're, they've done very well. But overshadowing this summit has been Germany's absolute blockade of um, banning fossil fuel cars from 2035. Germany produce, is the biggest car producer yes. in Europe and they they don't want to just have a blanket ban. And then on the other hand, you've got France who's trying to push the fact that nuclear energy as one of a green energy because, of course, they're a huge nuclear energy producer. So... Everyone has their own. Everyone has their own agenda, <laughs> and it seems that they're not quite in the same on the same step yeah. as in the days when David was working, and you had sort of people like Mitterrand and Cole working together. So I, I thought that was very interesting too, because there have been so many changes, let alone all the Eastern European countries and the new accession countries, mm -hmm. which have changed the agenda big time, haven't Hugely. they? Hugely. And uh, another thing I loved was his quote saying, "The further away he went from Brussels, the more people." seem to like the EU. It was something <laughs> along those lines. I can't remember it precisely now. I'll, I'll listen back to it later today. But um, it, but also he mentioned that in the US when he visited there, people really didn't understand the EU or what they stood for or what they meant. Which is extraordinary because you think it's not dissimilar to the United States, is it? Um, you know, people making their own laws, but having a sort of overreaching laws. Yeah. So it, you would have thought that the US, it, that must just be a lack of information. I yeah. Think. And with your husband then, do you ever have conversations about the EU at home or, or how it's moving or how it's going or what works, what doesn't work? Oh, yes, we do. We do talk about the EU quite a lot, actually. Um, yes, so, so something like the Ukraine policy has been very interesting for us because I think that, that that has been quite positive. It's the smaller, nigglier EU laws which kind of outrage people. And also when one country has a, a right of veto, so say Hungary uh, with the rule of law. So po Poland and Hungary with the rule of law, um, you know, that, that obviously causes quite a lot of upset. And, and I think also, I mean, what's relevant for his job is the fact that the statistics that are produced by the EU are not always the fastest, but they are the most accurate. And there's always statistics banded around, especially in news, which are not necessarily verified by the EU. And uh, that's their big 
job. Yeah, that's true. To get real information takes time. And uh, I mean, that goes back to the nature of social media yeah. and news being so instantaneous. But of course, certain types of news take time to research and uh, yes know. and we want everything quickly 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 <laughs> yesterday everything yesterday yeah but um but it was a real pleasure to speak with David and and I just hope that people learn from people like him who have this extraordinary experience he's lived his life as history has been made he's been there when history has been made and he did also say it's like one step forward two steps back it's it's like this you know shunting forward slowly it was wonderful to just be in his presence and hear about the history that he's lived through uh, it's really interesting, especially in Luxembourg, where mm. I think the country has obviously benefited hugely from having EU institutions here and being one of the sort of founding members, really. Um, and, you know, the whole history of Luxembourg is kind of really intertwined with the EU. So so I think you, you need those voices here um, to kind of remind people, you know, who are kind of working and taking it for granted that you can live anywhere in any European country that you that you wish to. Um, you know, that uh, someone from Romania can has now the same rights as um, someone from Germany to, to take a job within the EU. And mm. th- these are huge things, um, huge changes within our lifetime. Yes, and just to end then... I would like to encourage everybody, including myself, <laughs> to keep a diary, just a, a small diary every day, because as was mentioned again, the Kierkegaard quote that you live life forward, but it can only be understood backwards on reflection. He, David Harley, when he was looking through his notebooks again, could see patterns that he didn't notice at the time. For example, the various ministers that came to see him on behalf of Tony Blair and just drip-fed in that Tony Blair was interested in the presidency, etc. It didn't happen because of things with the Iraq war, but um, you can see things when you reflect on history. And I think we should all take a little bit more in our days and weeks and our lives to understand history as we live through it. I would always have the fear that my life was really quite boring because I don't meet, get to meet interesting people like that or, you know, being drip-fed information you'd, <laughs> that you'd look back on it like your teenage diaries and just think, well, not very much happened, did but it? Sasha, you see, that's why the voice of women in history is not present and that's why we don't have the voice of women so much in history because women were busy having the families and cleaning the house and cooking etc and so the voice of the woman that boring life as you call it is equally important that's true and actually it's a real trend journaling now amongst young people isn't it also for our mental, mental health, health. <laughs> it's it's a huge thing isn't it yes. as soon as people have any kind of uh, issues with their mental health they're told to keep a journal uh, and write things down so it obviously helps on on that side as well as maybe makes you analyse your your past a bit better. And just gets it out of your body and brain. So there we go to move you through the weekend and into the next month. We're almost in April. Uh, let's get journaling. Let's get diary keeping, whether we feel we have an important job or not an important job. Well, everybody's life matters. And so uh, that's a call out for anybody Go and buy yourself a new little red notebook as David Harley used for so many years and start journaling or keeping a diary. Have a lovely weekend. Mm-hmm.